Thank you for tuning into the Fun Time Horror Show. Most of the stories we will share are true events, unless otherwise stated, and will contain descriptions of gore and violence. Some stories shared could have detailed accounts of sexual events. This show may also give what may appear to be great ideas to some stupid people. Listener discretion is extremely advised. Howdy, folks. Like blood, violence, and freaks of nature? Well, then, come on down. September 19, 1961, Betty and Barney Hill are returning home to Portsmouth, New Hampshire from vacationing in Niagara Falls and Montreal. Betty, a social worker, and Barney, a postal worker, are a rarity in 1960s America. The couple are both devoted members in their local Unitarian church. Both of them are active in the civil rights movement of the day. Barney sat on the local board of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. They were members of the NAACP. While all of the above makes them extraordinary, what makes them unique is that Barney is a black man and Betty a white woman. The pair own a cute little black weenie dog named Delzy. About 10.30pm on their journey home, just south of Lancaster, New Hampshire, Betty observes a bright point of light in the sky that appears to be moving from below the moon and the planet Jupiter, upward to the west of the moon. At first, she thought what she was seeing was a falling star, but it began to move upward. The object moved erratically. It began to get larger and shine more brilliantly. Panicked, Betty insisted that Barney stop the vehicle so they could take a closer look. Plus, you know, old Delzy had to pee. They stopped at a scenic picnic area just south of Twin Mountain. As Betty peers through her binoculars, she sees an odd-shaped vessel. The vessel has flashing multicolored lights and still in view of her binoculars appears to travel across the face of the moon. Years prior to this, Betty's sister had claimed to have seen a UFO. This being in Betty's subconscious, she thought this might be exactly what she was seeing, a flying saucer. At this point in the ordeal, Barney decides to take a look through the binoculars and he observes what he initially thinks to be a commercial airplane traveling toward Vermont en route to Montreal. This logical explanation was shattered, however, when the plane, without the appearance of turning around at all, rapidly descended in his direction. It was in this moment Barney comes to realize this object that was a plane was not a plane. Barney and Betty continue driving on the isolated road, moving slowly through Franconia Notch so they can observe the vessel as it came increasingly closer. At a certain point in this ordeal, the flying saucer came so close that it passed over the head of the restaurant and signal tower on top of Cannon Mountain and came near the old man of the mountain, aka the Great Stone Face. It is a series of five granite cliff ledges that appear to be the jagged profile of a human face when viewed from the north. Per Betty's observation, the craft was roughly one and a half times the length of the old man formation, which was 12 meters long, and that it appeared to be rotating. The hills watched in awe 
as the silent glowing craft moves erratically and bounces back and forth in the night sky. The couple continue to travel south about a mile out from Indian Head. The unidentified object quickly descends on their vehicle. This forces Barney to abruptly stop in the middle of the highway. The object was enormous, silent and hovering overhead the hill's snazzy 1957 Chevrolet Bel Air, about 20 to 30 meters. The view of what Barney Hill described as a huge pancake is so large it takes up the entire scope of sight of their windshield. Barney then decides to approach the unidentified craft carrying his handgun. He peers through his binoculars as he approaches. He says to have observed 11 humanoid beings peering out of the craft's window, looking directly at him. Simultaneously, 10 of the 11 figures move to what appeared to Barney to be a panel on the rear wall of the hallway that encircled the front portion of the aircraft. The 11th and remaining figure seems to have telepathically communicated a message to Mr. Hill. Stay where you are and keep looking. Barney recalled the humanoid figures wearing glossy black uniforms and black caps. At this point in the encounter, red lights on what appeared to be bat-wing fins began to telescope out of the sides of the ship, and a long structure descended from the bottom of the craft. The craft, still silent, approached within 15 to 24 meters overhead and 91 meters away from him. Yes, I intentionally picked metric measurements, by the way. Barney would later report on October 21, 1961 to the NICAP, that is National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, investigator Walter Webb, that the beings were somehow not human. He tore the monoculars from his face and made haste to the car, frantically exclaimed to Betty, They're going to capture us! The craft at this point had made its way directly overhead their vehicle. Barney said, fuck that shit, and hits the gas. He buzzes off, speeding down the highway. The hills instantly heard a rhythmic series of beeping, buzzing sounds, which seemed to bounce off the trunk of their car. Their car vibrated, and a tingling sensation passed through both of the hills' bodies. The hills said that after this point in the encounter, they found themselves in a stupefied, dulled state of mind. The series of beeping, bumping, and vibrating started again and their consciousness was restored. They had traveled nearly 56 kilometers south, but had almost no recollection of this portion of their drive at all. All they could remember was making a sudden, unexpected turn, coming to a roadblock, and observing a fiery orb in the road. Betty and Barney arrived home at daybreak. Both noted strange feelings and sensations that neither could quite explain. For example, Betty was adamant that their luggage be kept near the back door of their home instead of the main living area. Their wristwatches had malfunctioned and were rendered useless. The leather strap from their binoculars was torn. A little personal opinion here, I think that could have happened in all of the excitement and they just didn't notice. The toes of his nicest dress shoes were all scuffed up. For some strange reason, Mr. Hill felt compelled to check his fellas in the bathroom. He didn't find anything wrong. What the fuck? Oh shit. Aliens. Let me check my nuts. After determining his cock was okay, 
He and the missus took showers to wash off any potential contamination from the butt sex the aliens just had with them. After drying off, the couple both drew pictures of what they had observed. The couple seems to have had experienced some time loss and had difficulty coming up with a timeline of events for their drive home while encountering the UFO. They could remember to a point some buzzing sounds, but after that their memories were hazy. They finally went to sleep for a few hours and upon waking, Betty put her shoes and clothes that she wore during the encounter in her closet. It was then she noticed the dress was torn at the hem, zipper and lining. Upon removing the items from her closet later on, she observed a pink-colored powder on her dress. She hung the dress on a clothesline and the pink powder blew away, leaving the dress irreparable. She initially threw the dress away but changed her mind, retrieved it, and stored it. In the years since the encounter, five separate labs have conducted analysis on this dress. Betty's dress wasn't the only of their belongings to show strange signs after the encounter. They found shiny, concentric circles on the trunk of their car that were not there the day prior. They tried placing a compass near the spots to test the nature of the circles, noting that when they moved close to the spots, the needle would whirl erratically, but when they moved it a few inches away from the spots, the needle would drop back down. September 21st, two days after their encounter, Betty calls Peace Air Force Base, like a super good patriotic American, to report what happened to them. Understandably, she did leave out some details not to come off as crazy. The following day, Major Paul Henderson called the Hills and requested an in-person interview. The interview resulted in a report issued September 26th by the Major. The report found that the Hills had misidentified Jupiter. The report was later amended to remove language such as optical condition, inversion, and insufficient data. His report was then turned into Project Blue Book, a government project located near Area 51. Today, if you or I get abducted or have a suspicion that we may have been abducted, we would be all over the internet looking up pink powder causes, aliens, what causes binocular straps to tear. But in 1960s USA, you can't do that, my friends. So when you want info on something that you didn't know about, you'd go to the library. So that's what our gal Betty did. She went to her local library and checked out a UFO book written by a retired Marine Corps major by the name of Donald Kehoe. What made Kehoe unique is that not only was he a former military man, he also headed the National Committee on Aerial Phenomena, NICAP, N-I-C-A-P, a civilian-run UFO research group. Recognizing that someone with his background and station may be more adept at helping them understand what happened to them, Betty wrote a letter to Mr. Kehoe, September 26, 1961 just seven days after their initial encounter with otherworldly beings. In the letter, she mentioned all the things she tried to dance around with the Air Force, the humanoid figures that Barney frantically saw through his torn binoculars. She stated that her and her husband were looking into hypnosis as a means of uncovering what their memories had blocked out. This letter was forwarded to Walter N. Webb, an astronomer and NICAP member out of Boston. What resulted was an October 21st interview Webb conducted with the Hills wherein they gave everything that could be recollected from their encounter. 
After six hours with the Hills, Webb was sure that they were telling the truth. Outside of, according to Webb, for some minor uncertainties and technicalities that may be tolerated in any such observations where human judgment is involved. Exact time, length, visibility of apparent sizes and objects and occupants, distance and height of an object, etc. I don't know where we are. I don't even know how we got here. At that time, I didn't feel afraid. Why are you crying if you're not afraid? I, I was afraid when I saw the men on the road. Men in the road? <laughs> Ten business days after their encounter, Betty started to have a series of dreams that lasted five consecutive nights. The dreams were very real to her, and in them she felt a sense of intensity and detail that she'd never experienced. After the fifth night, the dreams stopped. She never had them again. Upon mentioning the dreams to Barney, he expressed sympathy for his wife but wasn't too worried, and the couple soon forgot about it. By November of 1961, Betty began to chronicle the details of her dreams. In one of them, she and Barney encounter a roadblock and men who surrounded their vehicle. She lost consciousness and struggled to regain it. Then she realized that she was being forced by two small men to walk in a forest at night. She saw Barney walking in front of her and tried to call to him, but he was in a trance-like state, or perhaps sleepwalking. The men were about five foot five to five foot four inches tall and had matching blue uniforms with caps similar to those worn by military cadets. In appearance, the men were human-like with black hair, dark eyes, prominent noses and bluish lips. Their skin was a grayish color. The hills were led to their metallic ship and taken aboard a ramp that extended from the craft. Once inside, the Bings tried to separate them, but Betty got all sassy-like and was like, "Oh hell no. But the leader of their mysterious captors explained that there was about to be an examination and frankly it was going to take a lot longer if they had to probe them together. Probing is faster one-on-one, -on -one, you see. The Hills were taken to separate rooms. In her room, Betty was accompanied by the leader and an examiner, who she noted had a calm and pleasant demeanor. The examiner spoke broken, hard to decipher English, but she could understand enough to know that they were going to conduct some tests simply to compare their species to ours. She was sat in a chair by the examiner and a bright light was shown on her. Then the exam began. First samples of Betty's hair were taken, then her fingernails. Her fingernails, eyes, nose, mouth, teeth, throat and hands were all examined. Next, a dull object similar to a letter opener was used to take skin cell scrapings and they were placed on an object that appeared like cellophane. Lastly, they tested her central nervous system. A needle was pushed to her belly button. She initially cried out in pain, but the leader waved his hand over her eyes and the pain disappeared. The examiner left the room and the leader and Betty spoke. She found a book full of odd symbols, and the leader told her she could take it home with her. Betty asked her where they were from, and the leader showed her a map of stars and pointed to their home. In her dream, the hills were reunited after her exam, but as they came together, a disagreement took place between the captors. 
The leader told Betty that his companions didn't want her to have any memory of the encounter, but it became clear she wasn't coming home with the strange book of symbols. The couple was taken to their vehicle, where the leader of the Blue Man group suggested that they watch the craft take off. Betty and Barney gave a friendly wave to their new friends as they hovered away and got back on with their drive home. September 7, 1963, the Hill family being devout and all, attend church at their local Unitarian congregation. And this particular Saturday, there's a guest speaker. One of particular interest to them and what's been going on, Air Force Captain Ben H. Sweat gave a talk on hypnosis. Now, I don't know what Unitarians believe, but whatever it is in their belief system that would allow someone to come on stage and talk hypnosis, I like it. The church I grew up in would have been all like, Hypnosis? That's the devil! After his talk to the congregation, Betty and Barney approached Captain Sweat with their account of what happened to them and asked for help. Sweat advised the couple to ask their psychiatrist Barney had been seeing about the possibility of hypnosis as a means of therapy for Mr. Hill. They were then referred to a fellow by the name of Benjamin Simon out of Boston. It took a while for the Hills to meet with Mr. Simon, but they did finally see him on December 14, 1963. He dismissed their claims of seeing aliens, but was convinced that they fully believed that it had happened to them. That as far as they were concerned, they were not lying. He was intrigued to learn more. After the sessions with Barney, Mr. Ben Simon concluded that Barney's experience was a fantasy based on his wife's Betty's vivid dreams. Perhaps after hearing Betty's dream so often and being tired from a long drive on the road, the Hills had a shared hallucination. He felt it was the most reasonable and consistent explanation. The Hills weren't having it though, and Barney argued that even though some of his experiences were consistent with Betty's, they each had unique individual memories. He was ready to accept on his part that they in fact had been abducted and examined by beings from another world though he never did embrace it as much as Mrs. Hill. Though they could not come to a conclusion as to what was the true cause of the Hill's memories and experiences, the one thing that was undeniable about the hypnosis sessions is that they ostensibly served their purpose, alleviating the Hill family of their anxiety, dare we say trauma, around their perception that they had in fact been abducted. The findings of the hypnosis are as follows. Barney. The binoculars tore when he ran to the car to drive away in a hurry. He had driven away from the UFO but was irresistibly compelled to pull off the road and drive through the woods towards six beings. His descriptions of the beings was very similar to his wife's and he underwent a nearly identical medical procedure. The beings communicated using thought transference or telepathy. On the drive home, after the encounter, he attempted to replicate the buzzing sounds they heard, but was unsuccessful. Betty The main parts of her story were the same. Technology on the craft was slightly different. The sequence of the abduction events was out of order. She was extremely emotional during the sessions. One even ended early because she was crying so hard. Post-session, Simon suggested she try to draw the star map the leader had shown her. 
She drew 12 stars with solid and dashed lines connecting them. Solid lines were trade routes and dashed ones led to lesser traveled stars. Her and Barney's memories during hypnotic regression were almost exactly the same. Alright guys, and that does it for another episode of Funtime Horror Show. Thanks for tuning in and letting us spend the evening with you telling you the stories we love to tell. Uh, this one was fun because it's a little horrifying and it's a little fringe and it kind of meets both criteria for a Funtime Horror Show episode. Who's not freaked out by the concept of something you don't know coming in while you're unaware and snatching you from everything that you're most familiar with and then doing weird experiments on you? Um, there's so many places your mind can go, so many movies it makes me think of. Um, I just want to leave you with, uh, with this. We're going to give you some audio from Betty herself about her recollections from that encounter. Protect your booty. Protect your intergalactic booty, y'all. I don't know where we are. I don't even know how we got here. At that time, I didn't feel afraid. Why are you crying if you're not afraid? I was afraid when I saw the men on the road. Men in the road? <laughs> I've never been so afraid in my life. They're taking me up to the object. I don't want to go on it. I don't want to. I don't know what's going to happen if I go on it. I don't want to go. I go up the ramp and I go inside. I watch them take body in the next room and I go in this room. He tells me to take off my dress and then before I have even have a chance hardly to stand up to do it, the examiner it had my dress has a zipper down the back. And the examiner unzips my dress. It goes way down on my waist, the zipper does. And so I slip my dress off. So I don't have my my dress or my shoes on. They roll me over on my back, and the examiner has a long needle in his hand. And it, it's, it's bigger than any needle I've ever seen. And he, I asked him what he's going to do with it. And he said, just a simple test, it won't hurt me. And I asked him what? And he said he just wants to put it in my table. It's just a simple test. And I don't know it won't hurt. Don't do it. Don't do it. And even though it won't hurt. And he's taking the table. It's finished. And I'm crying and I tell him it's hurting and hurting and hurting. I'll be all right. I won't feel it. Oh.